So for out, throughout the 40 days of Lent here at Covenant, we have been on what we've called a journey to the cross, a journey that's taken us through each and every week as we've looked through the final chapters of the Gospel of Luke and asked ourselves what God's calling us to reflect on and to repent of, and we followed it through Holy Week and to Good Friday and to the cross, to the very foot of the cross. Today we don't go on a journey to the cross, but we do go on a journey to a tomb. And I invite you to listen and to read along to God's Word this morning from Luke chapter 24. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you want to say to us this day. Speak to us all, O living God, we pray in your name. Amen. So, I shared with you all a couple of months ago in a sermon about a wedding that I was officiating. It was a wedding that I was officiating where at the rehearsal dinner, I got seated next to some people who were in the wedding party that I didn't know. And sometimes that can be a really awkward thing. And sometimes when you get sat next to people, it actually clicks and it works well. And this was one of those times it clicked, right? I just had a great time talking to this certain guy and he was telling me about his family and his life and where he went to college and where he grew up. And we were just talking about what we did. And as the night started to wind down, you may remember that he looked at me and said, hey, listen, I need to ask you a question. And I don't mean to be offensive by this which is always awesome when someone starts out by telling you that what they're about to say is not meant to be offensive. Um, he said, you seem somewhat intelligent, uh, and you're a pastor. He goes, um, I love Jesus. I think he's a good moral teacher. I think he teaches about love. I think he had a lot of great things to say. I understand why people study him. But, you know, let's be honest. You don't believe this stuff, do you? And it's like, that's not offensive at all. Why, why would you think that's offensive? He's like, like, no, he goes, no intelligent person actually believes this. No intelligent person, he's now offended all of us. No intelligent person actually believes that this happened. He said, you actually believe that there was this guy that was tortured to death by the Romans 2,000 years ago in some podunk little outcropping of the Roman Empire that was pretty insignificant, that he was killed by being nailed to a cross, this horrible death, and that he was buried in a tomb, and that three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive, and that he is the Savior, the Messiah of the world. He goes, you actually think that's real? 
I said, yeah. And you know, I've been thinking about that conversation for a long time, and here's something that I want us to engage today. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? Because I actually am not offended by his question. I wish more people would ask it. I just wish more people would come right out and go, this is kind of a crazy story. Like, do you actually think this is real? And I'm becoming more and more convinced that the great danger of our faith is not those people who will just come out and are not in church today and are asking that question. One of the greatest dangers to our faith is how we have made it ordinary. How It's not how that they don't take our faith seriously. I think one of the great dangers is I'm not certain we take it seriously enough. Because Easter can so easily become just traditions and good feelings and getting together with people, right? Like we keep folks happy because we'll go to church on Easter and I'm saying I'm going to go and I'm not going to cause a fit and this gets me out of the the next 12 Sundays, Um, you know, or I'm here because this is what we do as a family and we wear pastels and we go to lunch afterwards and we have this spot where we go and it's kind of this nice occasion and I get it. And so we just sort of kind of go with it because this is what's expected. This is what's normal. This is what we do. But I would like all of us to engage this very, very central and important question for just a couple of minutes this morning, which is, do we actually think this is real? Is this reliable? Because, friends, if it is, it is the most transformative, amazing news that the world has ever heard. But we need to know, and we need to engage the question, do we actually believe this? For most of my life, for the majority of my life, I did not believe this was real. I didn't grow up just kind of believing and being enculturated with all this stuff. I did not think so. This was as real to me. The story we just read was no more real than Zeus being on Mount Olympus and hurtling lightning bolts at us, except Jesus seemed a lot friendlier than Zeus. So if we were going to build a culture around someone, I'd take Jesus over Zeus. But outside of that, there wasn't like an idea that this was real. It's just myths. It's just stories. It's, just, it's morality teaching, right? It's Jesus tells us just how to love each other. You don't actually need to believe this stuff. But I want you to know that in my own journey in life, I have come to believe in the historical accuracy of this. And I would like to suggest to you today that in the passage that we just read, there are at least three different reasons why I believe this story is reliable and trustworthy and true and historical. And if it is true, it changes everything about our world. So what are these things? First, the first reason I believe that this is reliable from this passage is that, number one, if you are writing some, and I don't know why anyone would want to do this, but let's just say you're writing some story that you have a mission of the whole world believing and trusting in, you would write it in a far more convincing way than this one is written, right? This is actually not written in a very convincing way. What I mean by that is, is that by the time this, Luke wrote this down, 35, 40 years after the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus had already ascended to the Father. And so who we were trusting in were the leaders of the church, right? And the folks in this gospel are not the folks that you would look at saying they are going to be world changers, right? The disciples are not people you look at going, man, those guys really had it together from beginning to end. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, they're kind of going, I don't understand this, and I don't know why we're doing this, and I don't know why you keep saying this, and I don't know why this is happening. Jesus keeps trying to teach them and trying to correct them. Uh, As they go on, as Jesus is arrested, every one of them have said, oh, I won't leave you. I won't betray. I would follow you anywhere. They all do what we would probably do. They cut and run at the first sign of danger. 
There's not courage here. There's not the kind of sacrifice you would want to see in, in, in the leaders of something. They run. Peter, who so, sometimes kind of is sort of the, the one that we think about the most, he denies Jesus publicly three times because he's scared about this. And when the women come back from the tomb, who are not expecting anything other than a dead body, when the women come back from the tomb and say to the original disciples, hey, guess what? We saw some heavenly beings. The tomb's empty. He's alive. Ten of the eleven don't even go bother to see if what they're saying has any validity. Peter's the only one who even goes and looks. The other ten are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. We're just kind of going away. Right? We're just sort of going back to our normal lives. These are not people that you would look at going, man, God, I want to, I want to follow those guys. That's what I want to be about. It is not, they, Luke knows that this is a story that's very, very difficult to believe. And if you were writing it, trying to convince people of it, people of it you would put the most convincing version forward you could. This would not be it. So it, number one is how it's written. Number two the re second reason I believe that this is true is because of the way it's written invites investigation and questions. Sometimes we feel like the Bible can't handle our questions, that it's scared of science or it's scared of history or it's scared of probing questions, so we have to protect it from that. We absolutely don't. We absolutely don't. Luke is a physician. The guy that wrote this gospel is a doctor. He's a physician. He's an educated person. And he writes it in a way where he says, I am presenting an orderly account of what I have investigated. Luke didn't just kind of hear a story and write it down going, this is kind of cool. Here, here, listen to this one. He said, I have investigated this. I have looked into it. I'm going to lay out an orderly account of what I have learned. Take, for instance, in this chapter, that kind of writing invites us to ask hard probing questions. In this chapter, Luke could have just said, these women went to the tomb and there was no one there. But he doesn't write that. He gives you the names of who they are. He says it's Joanna. He says it's Mary, the mother of James. He says it's Mary Magdalene. He writes it in a way that's going, these are the people. Some of them at this point may still be alive. Go ask them. Go investigate it. If they're not around, you can't find them. Ask their friends. Ask their children. Ask their nieces or nephews. If they had really did experience this, my guess is they told somebody about it. Go find out who they are. We even see this, that in this account he says it was uh, these certain women, and then he goes, and there were other women there. It's clear he doesn't know who they are, and so he doesn't try to make something up. He says, some of them I don't know, but these are the ones that historically we can look at and say are there. This is not the only place in the Bible that this kind of account is seen. The Apostle Paul was also a very learned, very educated, very scholarly person. He wrote many of his letters that we have in the Bible earlier than the Gospels. So for instance, he wrote his letter to the first Corinthians, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, about 10, 12 years after these events. Almost all of these people would still have been alive. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes out, he knows that this is a hard thing to believe. He doesn't just say, hey, trust me, I have it on good sources that this happened. He says, here are the names of the people that Jesus appeared to. Go and ask about them. Go and see. Go and check it out for yourself. This is who they are. You don't write with that kind of specificity if you're trying to protect it from probing questions. The gospel as writer is inviting us to ask, are these things real? And can they be investigated? He's giving everything he can to say yes. You don't write that way if you're writing about a fable or a lie. And lastly, and friends, this is still something that I just find astounding to this day. Number one, 
is that it is written in a very unconvincing way. Number two is the specificity that's there. But third and lastly is the uniqueness of this story. The uniqueness of this story. And here's what I mean by that. There are scholars who spend a lot of time and energy trying to convince people that this story is not real, that it is not historically reliable. One of the most common things they will say is, well, Jesus wasn't unique. He wasn't the only one talking about being the Messiah. There were lots of people at the time. There was a lot of upheaval. There was a lot of upset with Rome being in charge. There were lots of messiahs running around. He's just the one who remembers. There's nothing unique about him. There were a lot of others at that time who were claiming the same thing. I just heard a scholar a few days ago in an interview talking about this. And they're right. Jesus is not unique in claiming to be the Messiah at that time. He's not unique. He wasn't the only one making these claims. Do you know who the others were? No. Neither do I. Do you want to know why? Because they died and stayed dead. Think about it. Use your logic. Use your mind. Use your understanding of human nature. Put yourself in this position. Let's say you are a person who has left your home and you've heard this teaching and this way of living and you believe this person's the Messiah and you go follow them, right? Let's say you give up a year of your life following them. And what happened is, is that one of two things would always take place with these Messiah figures. They would either, number one, be publicly discredited, which they tried to do to Jesus over and over and over again, or they would be killed. If you are following somebody and they are publicly discredited and can't come back from it, or they are killed and stay dead, do you know what you do? You go home. You go start your life over. You don't run around telling people that he's alive when everyone can go check out the tomb and know that he's dead. You don't do that. But these disciples did. They spread out around the known world for years, for decades at time, with this simple proclamation that Jesus was alive and had appeared to them. And what did they gain from it? Nothing. Did they get money for it? No. Did they get fame for it? No. Did they gain a luxurious life of ease and followers? No. We know from history that they lived very lonely existences, that they traveled by themselves, they left their families behind, they were persecuted, they were jailed, and many of them were killed for this proclamation. Now, other scholars would say, oh, but there's this kind of groupthink mentality, and someone believes a lie, and then they start all kind of like feeding on each other, and we've seen that in history. No, we haven't seen that. Not like this. Because yes, there are these dynamics where a group can start believing something or thinking about it, and nobody wants to be the one to kind of break the secret, and it almost becomes real to you. But that works when you're together in this holy huddle. It doesn't work when you spread apart. And these folks went off on their own all proclaiming this same message. We know from history that James, the disciple, was beheaded for this faith. Let me tell you something. When you're by yourself and no one else is around, and the way you spare your life is to say, hey, this was, we just kind of made this up. It's sort of a funny gag. We wanted to see how viral it could go. Just kidding. When they put your head on the chopping block, you tell them. There is no other example in history of people going out on their own and over years proclaiming something they knew was a lie to somehow deceive folks. Friends, there is nothing like this in history. It is not a fable. 
It is not an allegory. It is not a, a, an event to just teach us how we just love each other better every day. It is factual. It is more accurate than many things we teach our children in school are historical. There's more evidence for it. This is real. This happened. And it changes everything. Everything is different because of this truth. John Wasson said in uh, one of our associate pastors in a sermon a couple of weeks ago that the cross represents the most horrible thing that human beings can do. It represents the most horrible thing because what the cross is is that God sent his son in the world to love us and to teach us what love was about and to uh, heal people and to preach this good news of message and, uh, of reconciliation to God. And what people did and what the religious and political establishment did is they killed him for it because it threatened their power. They killed him at night in secret when no one else was around. It's the ugliest thing that you can imagine because God came into the world, preached love, and people killed him. And it happened. It's the most extreme example that you can come up with. But God creates something beautiful out of it. God creates life from it. God creates hope from it. It changes everything. And if God can do that with the most ugly, distorted human act in history, what can God do today in our world right now? What does resurrection and hope that can't be vanquished have to say about your life here today and your family's life here today? And our world here today and all of its brokenness and all of its pain. What can God not do there? It changes everything. Many of you have seen this. I have seen this. Time and time again where the simple hope of the resurrection overwhelms everything else around it. Over the past year, I have had three of the most holy and powerful experiences that I've ever had in my life. Three of the most wonderful. Three of the hardest. And these three experiences were three separate occasions where I, as a pastor, was invited in to a room of hospice care where someone was in the final hours, the final days of their life. I was invited in to serve communion. These were three different men, one in his 40s, one in his 60s, one in his 70s, two of whom were members of this congregation. I was invited into that space to serve communion, and I don't want to paint a false picture of it. These were rooms where there was pain. These were rooms where all three of these men were still married and their spouses were there next to their beds while they're dying. These were rooms of heartache. These were rooms of sorrow. These were rooms of loneliness. And there were moments where it was almost impossible for me to keep my composure because of the mourning and the pain and the sadness that I was standing in the midst of and a part of. It was not a great, grand, beautiful picture. It was broken in so many ways. And in that broken space, with a couple of family and friends gathered around. We took some bread and we said, this is the body of Jesus that is broken for you. 
There is nowhere you can go in this world. There is no brokenness you can encounter in the world to come that Jesus has not already gone before you. You don't journey alone. And we took a cup and we said, this cup is a new covenant. It is sealed in the blood of Jesus. It is shed for the forgiveness of sins. It is the proclamation and promise that there is no place, not even death, where life and hope do not reign supreme. And in those rooms, there was something beyond just sadness and difficulty and pain. There was faith. There was hope. It wasn't showy. It wasn't boisterous. It wasn't in your face. It wasn't all the things that we associate negative. It was quiet, but it was powerful. And it was a place of intense sadness and intense hope all mixed together in the same moment. I left all three of those rooms and wept after every single one of those encounters. But part of my tears were tears of thankfulness, that I had walked in busy, stressed out, all the different things that have going on, and you walk from that place going, Lord, if you can be so present there, how do I live with the anxiety and stress and fear that I do on a daily basis of what you could do in my life right now? And in one of those services, at the end of communion, I got to sit down next to the person who was dying. And I asked him a question that few of us ever get to ask to anyone. I asked him this. What's it like to know that you're in your final hours? You see, in those moments, we can't distract ourselves like you and I often do with Instagram and Facebook and ESPN and CNN. There's no distractions from the fact that one day that will be each and every one of us. And this man looked at me and said something I will never forget. He said, Thomas, I've never been more aware that in life and in death, we are Easter people. And therefore, there are no longer any dead ends. Amen. Amen. This is real. This is true. This is reliable. This is the hope of the resurrection. This is what we celebrate today. This is what we celebrate in your life, that there are no dead ends. I know you walk in here with pain and I know you walk in here with disappointment and I know you walk in here with doubts. Listen today, that will not be the end of your story. There are no longer any dead ends in this world or in the world to come. There are no longer any dead ends for those of us who are following in Jesus. There are no longer any dead ends. And so the danger of Easter is that we domesticate it. The danger of Easter is that we make it about pastels and family traditions and where we're going to lunch and who we're going to be with and who we're going to keep happy. The danger is that we make it ordinary and about these ordinary rhythms of the year. No, no, Easter is the time when we take our pain and our heartache and the difficult things and we allow the light of the resurrection, the hope of Jesus to shine directly in to those jagged, painful, ugly places and say 
that He is risen, that He is alive, that He is no longer in the tomb. It could not contain Him. He is risen. And you and I will rise as well. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask this day that the hope and light of the resurrection would shine brightly into the jagged, uncomfortable places of our lives, of our city, of our world, that you would help us to live this day as children of the resurrection, as people of hope, as people who claim in your name this day that there are no dead ends. That no matter what we walk back out into today, the story goes on. There are no dead ends. We give you thanks. We stand and sing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise and sing one more song. Mm -hmm.